Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this night, this opportunity to be together, to dive into your word and allow your word to speak to us. We pray, Lord, that your voice would be heard by each one of us in power to comfort us, to challenge us, to guide us, to give us the answers that we seek, and to help us to know you and fall more deeply in love with you, Lord. We pray tonight that you would help us to be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for each one of us, and help us in any ways we are worried, distracted, unfocused, anxious, doubtful, in the ways we feel disconnected from you. We pray, Lord, that you would cast out any presence of evil, any attachments, any darkness, anything drawing our attention and focus away from this place. You would bind and renounce those things and cast them out by the power of your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and bring healing and make your presence known here. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. This is our gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And so we're going to read this passage twice through. First time through, we're just going to get a picture for what is being said. Let me kind of paint the picture a little bit. So last week we had the parable of the workers in the vineyard, right? It's not fair, you know, that parable, okay? So Jesus at that time, remember, he had made his way down to Judea from Galilee, but he was across the Jordan, preaching in the area where uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived, where John the Baptist had baptized. Now at this point, he has crossed over the Jordan and he has entered into Jerusalem, and he has cleansed the temple. He's gone to the place of authority, the representative area of all of the center of Jewish worship. And he has kind of uprooted that. He's been very clear about his dissatisfaction with how things are going there. And so there's this interaction where the question, the authority of Jesus is questioned by the elders. And he poses a question back to them that they can't answer. So he says, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he preaches this parable. This is actually the first in a series of parables that are called the judgment parables, where Jesus is speaking judgment toward those who have knowledge of God but have not responded to his covenant. Okay, so this is the first of those. So keep all of that imagery in mind. Jesus is now in Jerusalem leading into the events of Holy Week. He's just ticked off a lot of people by flipping over the tables in the temple area, by cleansing the temple, running out the money changers. And then he has this altercation with the Pharisees, he outsmarts them, and he offers this parable. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 28. 
Jesus says, what is your opinion? A man had two sons. He came to the first son and said, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son said in reply, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. He said in reply, yes, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? They answered, the first. Jesus said to them, Amen. I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him, but tax collectors and prostitutes did. Yet even when you saw that, you did not later change your mind and believe him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, pretty spicy words from Jesus to the Pharisees, the elders, people questioning him. Um, obviously, the tensions are rising toward the events of, that will ultimately culminate in Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Uh, and so you can see why Jesus really is starting to irritate the powers that be and uh, really just take it to them. So, uh, second time through, now that you get a picture for what's being said, um, I invite you to listen more closely to the words as they are read. See if any particular word or phrase stands out to you personally in any specific way. Uh, it doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage. could just spark a memory, a thought. Pay attention to those things. The Lord speaks to us in different ways through Scripture. And so just reflect on those things that stand out to you. Ask, why is this standing out? What might God be saying to me through this detail? So second and final time through, Matthew 21 Verse 28. What is your opinion? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. He said in reply, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. He said in reply, Yes, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? They answered, the first. Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him. What tax collectors and prostitutes did. Yet even when you saw that, you did not later change your mind and believe him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a look back over the passage and the things that stood out to you um, and reflect on why. If you're watching, let us know what stood out to you. Uh, but for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes or so at your tables. Feel free to join a table if you have a smaller one. And we're just going to discuss what stood out to you, why you think it did, and any questions that you have about this reading, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some discussion and to answer those questions. So take about the next 10 minutes. So uh, putting this context, we've already kind of put this passage in context a little bit as to what's happening in the events of Matthew. So we know now Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's, he knows this is the culmination of his mission. This is the final week of his life. Now we're going to see a lot of the things 
begin to get more intense in his interactions with the powers that be. And so this speaks a lot to the theme of authority in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and within Matthew's Gospel, this is spoken about very, very heavily. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is spoken as one who has authority, one who has some deeper sense of authority. In Matthew chapter 8, the centurion recognizes that Jesus has authority just like he has authority over his soldiers. In Matthew chapter 9, it's said that Jesus has the authority to heal and to drive out demons. In Matthew 10, he gives that authority to his apostles. In Matthew 16 and 18, he gives the authority to bind and to loose. And in Matthew 28, he says at the very end of the gospel, all authority has been given to me by my Father, and so I send you. And so this theme of authority is very prevalent in Matthew because Jesus is being painted as this new son of David, the messianic figure who's going to come and undo all of the things that went wrong in the disobedience of man, and the disobedience, the disconnection, the unfaithfulness to the covenants of the Jewish people. And so they had this image that Jesus was going to be this political figure, this you know, person who's going to overthrow Rome, reinstitute the, the kingdom of David, etc. But he appeals instead to the authority of the Pharisees and shows how their authority is not measuring up to what God has asked of them. And he's using this parable to paint that picture. And so when you look at this parable, you know, we have this parable of a father who's uh, the owner of a vineyard and he has two sons. Now, there is a lot of father-son obedience kind of wisdom literature and teaching in the Torah and in the Old Testament. Uh, one particular area is in Sirach chapter 3. There's a whole section on responsibilities to parents. And one of those lines, uh, Sirach 3.16, says, Those who neglect their father are like blasphemers. And what was the punishment for blasphemers? Death. And in fact, if you turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's actually a section starting in verse 18 called the stubborn and rebellious son. That's actually a law. If you have a stubborn and rebellious son, here's what you're supposed to do. It says, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not listen to his father or mother and will not listen to them even though they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders at the gate of his home city. The gate was kind of where all the judgments were made. Where they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is a stubborn and rebellious fellow. That's just a funny phrase to me. <laughs> son of ours is a stubborn and rebellious fellow who will not listen to us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all his fellow citizens shall stone him to death. Thus shall you purge the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear and be afraid. So that is the punishment for stubborn and rebellious sons in the Torah. That was something everyone would have learned. Every child after the age of five, when they went to synagogue school, they would have memorized that passage. They would have known this. And so disobedience to parents was something that was taken very seriously. And so when you look at this passage, which of the sons is disobedient? Both of them. Both of them are disobedient. Both of them are sinners. Just like the groups of people Jesus is talking to, the Pharisees and the tax collectors and prostitutes, they're all sinners. But it's about who is standing fortified in their sin, who's willing to do something about it, and which is the greater sin between the two. Because remember the fourth commandment. What is it? On your father and mother. Is that it? No. On your father and mother so that you shall have a long life in the land of the living. Implying that if you do not honor your father and mother, 
your life ain't going to be too long, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 21, okay? That's the full text uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 of the fourth commandment. And so it's taken very seriously. Both are disobedient. But Jesus here is recognizing there's degrees, okay? That's why we have degrees of sin in the Catholic Church. There's mortal sin, there's venial sin. But also, there's a disparity here as to what the sin of each son was. One son said he would do something, but ended up not doing it. He didn't follow through in his actions. One, fo- one son said he wouldn't, but ended up following through in his actions. So he sinned just in his words. Words over works. And those who sin based on their works are the ones who are judged more harshly in this parable. That if it's just empty words, it's not, it means nothing if it's not backed up by works. And so this not not normally cited as a passage as such, but can be a passage that really speaks to the fact of our idea of faith and works and how they cooperate in our idea of salvation and grace in the Catholic Church. Because our brothers and sisters in Protestant traditions, they believe that it's just faith alone. All you need is to have faith in Jesus. And that's great and all, but that is just words. And a lot of them, charitably, a lot of them would argue that you should have works to back up that faith, obviously, or else your faith is empty. We just articulate that differently and we say that we will be judged according to our works. And it says all over scripture, the power of works and the necessity of works in order to attain the graces necessary for our sanctification. We can't receive the graces that we need to be saved. Only Jesus merited that, those for us on the cross. But after that point, that we respond to Jesus in faith, the catechism says, that through our works, we can merit the graces needed for our ongoing sanctification in order to then be made worthy of eternal life. In other words, we express faith in Jesus, we respond to it, we receive it in our baptism, but then we've got to live up to it. And being willing, being able to live up to that commitment means we're going we're gonna to show up and we're going to do the works. We're not just going to preach or speak empty words. So this really calls out the hypocrisy at the time, and the hypocrisy we may still experience in our own lives and in the church today. So think about the context here. When Jesus said this, the first son was representative of the the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Those that said, oh no, we're not going to follow Jesus, we're not going to follow God, but later on they repented and decided that they would. The second son was the Pharisees, the scribes. They say they follow the Lord, but in their actions, they're not actually doing what is asked of them. They're abusing their positions of power. And yet, when Matthew wrote this, it was at a different time. It was years later. And at that time, the issue was the first son was representing the Gentiles. The Gentile Christians that were coming into the church and were being treated as if they were other. Their widows were not being taken care of. In Acts of the Apostles, we see that. They had to elect deacons to take care of them. They were being judged based on ceremonial food and ritual laws that were common in Judaism but no longer necessary in Christianity. And so the second son is representative of those Jews or Jewish Christians who were inhospitable, uncharitable to those who were coming into the church. And for us today, who's the first son and who's the second son? The first son is really any sinner, our neighbor. Your neighbor is someone in front of you who has a need, like literally anybody who has a need or a desire for God. But the the second son has a risk of being us. The person in the pew who doesn't get it. 
The person in the pew who goes through the motions but maybe doesn't have that personal relationship with God. The person in the pew who believes all the right things and says all the right things, but behind closed doors, maybe they're not doing all of the right things. Their words matter more than their works. And so this passage is just as applicable to us today as it was at the time it was written, as it was at the time that Jesus said it. And though it applies to different groups of people, all of those different times in history had this reality going on. That there are those in the church who look at others and say, mm -hmm. Big old sinner, not welcome here. Not as holy as I am. And we look out in judgment at the way other people worship, at the way other people pray, at the way other people do liturgy, at the way other people contribute their time and their talent, the way other people show up to Mass, the way other people dress. We can very easily fall into that position of being Pharisees, the ones who are easy to call out those people we see as sinners, but not recognizing our own need for repentance. That is the, the glaring criticism that is made known at the end of this passage. Even though you saw these people coming to Christ, you didn't believe. You didn't turn away from your sin. That's a challenge for us because Jesus here says, they're entering the kingdom of God before you. It doesn't mean they can't enter the kingdom of God after get in the back of the line, recognize because of their conversion that maybe they need to turn away. There's, the door is still open. But if they're so focused on like, really, that person, Jesus? Really, you want to save them? Really, that person who's in that other political party? Really, that guy who always parks on my street or in my driveway? Really, that Tesla driver, that black BMW owner? You know, all those people, really, my HOA board? You know, whoever ticks you off. If you're so focused on the fact that, wow, Jesus wants them, and that's what's irritating you, and it's not compelling you and me to further repentance, further self-reflection to turn away from our sins, then we can very much fall into this trap of being modern-day Pharisees. We should be welcoming opportunities for people to come into the church. And yet most Sundays, when new people come into the church, they try and sit in someone else's pew and they get the eyes. This is my spot. Right? You know, is our church a hospital, are our churches hospitable places? And what does that really mean? So that in one way is how to speak to us. And I just want to speak for a moment about obedience. That here, obedience, again, the word obedience comes from the Latin obedire, which means to listen or to hear. But obedience is not just listening to someone. Obedience, we show we are listening by a change in our behavior and our lifestyle. That is what obedience means in the religious sense, in the Catholic sense. If we are truly obeying what God is asking of us, that means that we will change our behavior and our lifestyle. We will look and behave and act differently because we believe in Jesus and follow him, period. And so if your life looks exactly the same as it did when you were a big, great sinner before, maybe you're still a big, great sinner. Like maybe that hasn't really affected your life. Maybe we haven't really turned away from sin or gotten rid of some of those attachments. And that's what this is calling you and I to as well. Real obedience. Real willingness to trust in God. And that requires humility. St. Augustine was once asked, can you name the four cardinal virtues? You know what the four cardinal virtues are? Prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude. Um, they're, they're virtues that we can practice, that we can build up the practice of the virtue in, in our own lives. We can, we can grow those virtues in us. But St. Augustine didn't say those. He was asked, can you name the four cardinal virtues? And he said, sure. Humility, 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 humility. That's what it takes to obey, 
to recognize which son we are and respond accordingly. Because at different times in our lives, we might be either. But I guarantee you, before the end of your life, you'll probably be both. All that being said, questions, comments, things that stood out to you? Greg. You really get a, a sense of this one that Jesus is right on the edge. Mm -hmm. He's ready like, to tell these guys off. Oh, yeah. Every four-letter word that he knows. <laughs> but uh, it's like he's just barely holding himself back. Mm -hmm. And I looked, I looked above just to see, just to confirm like what he used about who he was talking to. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, that after Jesus, in the 23, after Jesus had come into the temple courts, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to us as his teaching said, what authority do you have to do these things? Like, who, who gave you? Yeah, who the heck are you, guy? Yeah. Who are you, you know? Yeah. You don't know how many other people are around when they said that to him. Yeah. So it's probably like upsetting him right there mm. know, a little bit. So it's, uh, said, you know, sometimes you don't get a sense of Jesus' emotion. Mm. I think we could get a sense of it in this gospel. Yeah, I mean, turn a few verses earlier than that and see him flipping over tables. I think you get a sense of his emotion there. You know, like he's pretty, that's that righteous anger. Like anger is not a sin when it's righteous, when it's about injustice. And we see that, you know, plainly in the actions of Jesus before that. And then to have that confrontation right after. Most of us would not be able to keep a cool head. And yet he does. And then he's able to kind of have this masked, more nuanced kind of uh, uh, confrontation with the Pharisees. But if you're curious, you can turn ahead into Matthew uh, chapter 23 and 24, and you will see how Jesus really feels over and over. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He, get, he lets them have it in a few chapters. But this whole, it's, it's clear here that Jesus is like so meticulously intentional and accurate in his mission that he waits until the very moments that he knows this will lead to this confrontation that will bring about his death to start speaking in a way that's going to make those tensions erupt. But every time before that, he tells his apostles, don't tell anyone yet. And I'm going to die, and in three days I'll be raised. And they have no idea. And he keeps trying to tell them. He keeps trying to prepare them. He keeps trying to, you know, they want to, they want to make him the Messiah. They want to elect him as king in one of the Gospels. And he slips through their midst. He's very careful and intentional about his mission. He knows exactly what he was doing. And he did it for you and for me. Yes? Hopping on his pretext yeah. um, about the parable of the two sons, uh, the Pharisees try to outsmart Jesus. Yep. And then Jesus rebukes them in a way and saying, you don't know me, you don't know God. Mm -hmm. And that leads right into this. Um, what? Where's the danger in like in our Catholic faith of, I mean, obviously just going through the motions, but beyond that of like, how do we know if we don't truly know God? Mm. How do we know if we truly don't know God? Wow, what a question. <laughs> I'm thinking of the passage where it says, um, you will know them by their fruits. And I think the fruit of the Holy Spirit is undeniable in a person who really, truly knows God and has invited him into their life. And so, like I said before, obedience leads to a change in behavior and lifestyle. If someone's life just looks like everybody else's, then that might be a sign that they're not yet 
at that place in the depth of relationship with the Lord where that fruit is being known, where it's blossoming, where it's right before the picking, you know, to use the analogy. So, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be clear in a person who has a deep relationship with God. Absolutely. So if you're not recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if the presence of God, you don't feel that connection, uh, it's not always about a feeling, but especially if it's not leading to any kind of fruitfulness, any kind of real change, repentance, turning away from sin, the grace to do things that you couldn't do before. You know, those things I think are clear indicators that there is something else at work in our lives, that we really have this relationship with God. And there's also the clear indicator in how we look at other people. If we look at other people and we jump to criticism and jump to judgment, then that's a clear indicator that we might be falling into being Pharisees. That it's more about what we know and having that intellectual superiority than really having a heart for the Lord. Because a heart for the Lord looks at other people and sees Christ in them and wants to meet him in them and wants to lead them to deeper understanding of who he is. And so it's kind of this shift from like going from what do we want from other people you know, sometimes we have this kind of idea in church, like we want correct behavior from other people. We want them to do the things that we think are appropriate versus what do we want for other people? And in interactions when we're in, in church and in ministry in our life and we start having that lens, what do I want for this person? I think that's another indicator that that relationship with God is real and it's, take, it's bearing fruit in our lives. Yeah, great question. John. So the fruit thing, a big one. How you change, how you live your life, if you just were to stand back and say, okay, am I doing my obligation? That's what happened. And then am I doing anything more beyond the obligation? Just helping and praying for people, etc. And then that's where a spiritual advisor can definitely um, guide you because they'll have like insight and see the patterns and growth. Then there's this other side which a lot of the saints um, talk about where like you're gonna feel like dry spells and you're gonna feel like very distant from God, which is a feeling like Mother Teresa felt this way, St. John the Cross felt this way, he felt even farther from God. Mm-hmm. And um, I forgot who said it, but uh, one of the saints said it's God weaning you from the from like the spiritual breast milk, basically. Yeah, so there, it, it sucks for the kid, but you have to grow in the faith. And um, so you might experience, really the warning is, if you experience these things, it, not, it isn't necessarily a sign you're, you're diverging from God. In fact, you might be getting closer to him, less attached to the, um, you know, what, what we would, for lack of a better word, the pleasures of, like, the feel good, and, you know, you feel, you feel right, you might actually feel yeah, yeah. So yeah, as I mentioned, faith is not a feeling. You know, we can have those experiences, but that fruitfulness will persist even in moments of of feeling spiritual dryness or desolation or dark night of the soul. Um, so absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Diva. Um, the yes. Am I getting such like I'm just thinking to another level? Because like Happy Bright, we did a few times. Is he saying that he came in the right great and mighty conversion and he didn't and he wrote the second one? And then you saw that the people who were the first one doing the right thing 
you still were then believe him. So it's like another level of disobedience. Yes. Yeah. They don't repent initially when John the Baptist invites them to. And then they see others answering and having these supernatural experiences, and they still don't. So yeah, it's like a double disobedience, absolutely, of the Pharisees. Yeah. Yes. Why is this kind of this this kind of this tension, climactic criticism kind of happening predominantly in Matthew. Um, So Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. The other gospel writers don't have that same intent or audience. And so because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, he wants to be very aware of Jesus's criticism of Jewish authority and where they went wrong, because that also sheds light on a new authority that he is bringing for a new church to be established, um, which leads to Christianity. So there are certain things, confrontations with Jewish structures, systems, laws, that are more obvious or explicit in the Gospel of Matthew, because that's the audience Matthew is writing to, and he wants to be very clear about what Jesus is doing in like the rabbinical tradition and how he's operating in that foundation of the Torah the system of the temple, the system of the Pharisees and elders and scribes and priests, etc. So it comes more out in Matthew. But you reminded me of something else, actually, in asking that question. One other unique thing in the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew is very cognizant of uh, the, the reverence that we're meant to have for God's name. And so he always, almost the entire Gospel, uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven, except here he says the kingdom of God. In verse, what verse is that? 31. Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. And anytime you see God or Lord written in the Bible, that is an opportunity for that to potentially have been translated from the name of God, Yahweh. Now, this is probably like Kyrios or something like that, like Lord, but it still is a sign of like the the reverence for God's name and that Jesus is kind of testing authority, showing that he has the authority to invoke God's name, even though they dared not do that. And so Matthew is also using this kind of phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, being very kind of kosher with it, no pun intended, but like being very like uh, non-confrontational with it. And then soon as he starts getting confrontational, confrontational, he uses confrontational religious language. He invokes that powerful title and name of God that he didn't do elsewhere, or he does very rarely in the Gospel of Matthew. He'll use kingdom of God in Luke. Luke uses that like left and right, but not in Matthew. So that kind of jumped off the page for me too. So when you're talking about those like authority details, that reminded me of that. So thank you. Yeah. But notes talk about how um, in other Gospels, um, the, the Pharisees' response is different. Um, mm. How they say that the second... The second son was the one that was correct. Um, I guess in your eyes, is that like a testament, as is the answer in the Gospel of Matthew, a testament to their, to their hypocrisy as well? But like, how is it a different testament to their hypocrisy? So they say a different son is correct? It talks about on the footnotes, uh, the, the Pharisees uh, agree with the set, that the second son is... Um, yeah, because don't they say that in the, the first is correct in this one? And so they agree that the second is incorrect, right? Am, did, am I misreading this? I'm going to talk about 
I'm going to talk about how um, it's literally just the difference of like who they say is correct. But I, I just thought it was like the message is the same. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, it would alter why they think they're correct. I don't see that in mind for some reason. Um, I do recall that there are different reactions among the Pharisees and Sadducees in some moments in these climactic, this climactic week of Jesus' ministry in, the whole, in, in, in Jerusalem, where some of them are like, who is this man? He speaks with such authority. You know, like they have more of a, a fascination instead of this like stark tension that we see in Matthew. Um, so yeah, I'd have to look more into that because I didn't notice that anywhere. But yeah, that could be that could be the reality. It might be opposite in the other gospels, but I don't I don't have a recollection of that. So yeah, if anyone else finds that, please tell me. So I'd be interested in comparing them. Yes. Yes. In terms of like human nature, is the assumption like there goes to be some sort of thing? Because that's like kind of an open ending in a way, saying I will go, um, and they don't. He doesn't say what happens necessarily. Is it the assumption that they go to hell? They repent? Is it just open to them mm. doing the action? Yeah. Yeah. So what happens to those the son who doesn't, who says that he will, but doesn't follow through in his actions and does not repent? meaning the people who are in the place of the Pharisees. Well, it would obviously depend on that repentance. You know, So if we truly repent, if we turn away from our sin, even at the very last moment of our life, that matters. That makes a difference. If it's authentic, if it's real. Does that open up interpretation that practically everyone could go through their life just accepting, like, oh, I will, never do it. Oh, I will, never will. And then there's always that last moment in which they know, oh, when the time comes, I can repent. So it's kind of, I don't want to say a whole house, that's not the right footage, but you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. a, I can always say I'm going to do something not to do it because I know if I repent in the right time enough. Yes, yeah. So is there kind of like a hall pass loophole here where someone could just wait till the very end of their life and say, no, I'm not going to do it now, but at the end, I will. Uh, and there's two problems with that. One is that you're already planning for it not to be an authentic repentance because you're pre-planning for all of your sin. And secondly, there's not going to be some kind of neon light that shines like, this is the last moment of your life. Time to repent. You know, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when our last moment will be. So yeah, you could like play dice with your life and just be like, all right, like I really love Jesus, but I also really love worldly things and sinning. And at the end of my life, I think I'll probably really regret it, but not yet, you know? So, and then you get to the end of your life and you're like, yeah, no, I really regret that stuff. And now I know I'm going to die. So I really honestly repent. I think the circumstances surrounding that would be really rare because the state of a person's heart needs to be authentic. So if you've anticipated your entire life, I'm just doing this as a catch-all out of hell, that's different than actually repenting and being sorry for your sins. That's what being repent, repenting means, being sorry for your sins and turning away from them. That would be more, I'm not sorry I did these things. I just want to be free of the consequences of them. What's that? Yeah. 
Yes, so real repentance means you are sorry for your sins. In this situation, if you were to do that hall pass mentality, all you're doing is having fear that the consequences of your sin are going to lead you to hell. But you're not necessarily sorry because you were willing to keep sinning your entire life until you made it to that last moment. And you're treating like repentance almost like a technicality. You know, just like, well, I got to do this so I can get to heaven. And you're just kind of checking the box. I pass go, so I get to collect $200, right? Like I said, I repent. And I've been planning to do this my whole life, so I get to go to heaven, right? No. The, the, the repentance needs to be authentic. It needs to be real. It means to be a turning away from sin explicitly so that we end out of a true remorse for our sins and the separation that they bring us in our relationship with God. That's not just, we talked about this before, not just attrition, which is fear for your sins. Now that can sometimes be enough, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. I think Catherine brought this up. Attrition can be enough to get you to confession fear uh, out of the loss of, of heaven in order for you to repent of your sins or at least express some kind of initial sorrow. But in the proper order of confession in the catechism, it says contrition is necessary, that we need to actually be sorry for our sins in order for the confession to be valid. And the same thing would be in order for us to truly repent and turn away from sin so that if we die in a state of serious sin, that we would be worthy of heaven or that we would be able to get to heaven. Nobody's technically worthy, but. I guess yeah. Oh, yeah. He's definitely trying to light a fire under him. Yeah. But I don't think it's just to be like, I want you to say you're sorry or that you were bad. It's like, no, he wants everyone. He wants everyone to make a full repentance for their sins, regardless of what they're doing. And so, as irritated as he is with them, he, he points them out more particularly than other groups of sinners because they have a responsibility for other souls. This is why it says in James chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should be teachers because they will be judged more harshly, more strictly. So people in my position or people in positions of authority who preach or who teach the faith, we're going to be judged more harshly on the day of our judgment, because we have the capacity to cause more misunderstanding, more scandal. We have the capacity to lead more people astray in our wrongdoing. And the Pharisees were exactly in that position. Because of their bad example, many people were led astray and did not understand the love that was the foundation of the law and then practiced it more as a going through the motions because that's the, what they were modeled by the Pharisees. And so that they're going to be held accountable to that as well. So it's not just a, you know, oh, maybe, you know, if you want to live your life that way, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to be the father, so like, I'm going to like kind of ignore my kid until like, it's completely. Um, self-defeating, and yeah. everybody would know that, and that's why it's like, but, yeah. uh, and then you mentioned authority and mm -hmm. Pharisees, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to point out that I, I've been, I understand that there's authority and there's power. Sure, and yeah. Authority comes from God, and these Pharisees, these are not, they have power because they have positions of power, but they are not, it's not, they don't have authority, though. And, and when, when they say, um, when it says here, when John came to be in a way of righteousness, mm -hmm. he was speaking in a technical term to the, the scribe and the scribe and the priest, 
because they understand this language. Mm -hmm. It's a technical thing. Because that comes from God, how to be righteous. Yeah. Not how to follow the 613 laws. Sure. Because that comes from God. Yeah. And so maybe you can, even though they don't have authority, their power can still lead people astray and be like worse for them. Yeah. 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 I would say I, I would agree with you in the sense that they don't have any God-given authority unique to their position. The authority that they do have comes from the things they attach themselves to that come from God that do have authority, like the law and the temple. Those things were authoritatively instituted by God for a purpose. And because they have roles within them, they can align themselves with authority. But you're absolutely right. They don't have any unique authority unto themselves. Like Jesus displays having a unique authority, being able to judge or teach in the way that only God can. So yeah, there is that absolutely is that distinction between their power and authority. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a side note. Um, really speaking more to context of the time, it seems like over the core of a lot of this is selfishness versus selflessness. Yeah. Um, that's where the genuine comes from. Or right? mm -hmm. a lot of I think Christians, Catholics, want to like doing works out of fear of their own self-preservation. Mm. Do you think that the fact that they were under Roman rule led to this culture of self-preservation seep mm. into everything? So there was this extra fear yeah. of losing power or you know, losing? Yeah, so was the fact that they were under Roman rule lead to this fear and kind of self-preservation, that they do these works out of just fear of judgment or fear of losing what God had given them? Um, I think you could say that that was a part of it, possibly. Um, there were different relationships with Roman authority among these different groups. So the high priest and the Sadducees, they were more of like the upper echelon of society. They had actually really good relationships with Rome. They were in positions of nobility. They had a lot of perks from Rome. Uh, whereas the Pharisees, they were actually very concerned for like the law and the worship, but they just, they were overly concerned. They, become, they became so zealous for the law, it only became about the law and not what the law was about. But they had their share of, of, um, of run-ins with Roman authority, you know, uh, and the different tensions that were there. And so um, there is this kind of interesting theme in the Old Testament that most of the Old Testament as we know it was kind of in the forms that we have it now were written down or assembled during the time that the Hebrew people were in exile in Babylon. They were away from the temple. They weren't in their normal structure. And so we have these interesting stories that almost teach the Hebrew people to kind of do whatever it takes to survive. And the story I always think about is the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Esau is the oldest. He has the birthright. Jacob is born second, holding on to Esau's heel, but he's the favorite of his mother. And so he does all this messed up stuff to his brother to steal his birthright, to like trick him out of his birthright from his father. And Esau's not very smart. Like he kind of gives it up pretty easily. But then Jacob is praised and like never really reprimanded for doing all this shady stuff, right? And a lot of biblical scholars say that stories like that exist in the Old Testament to teach the Hebrew people how to survive under oppressive rule so that what matters most, the deposit of faith, the things they've been given to by God will survive that that remnant God promises, the hope that they long for will persist. And so I don't, I don't think we should interpret that, that we have the permission to do that kind of shady stuff to make sure our faith survives. I mean, who knows what the world will look like in, in other years. But as for like, we live in a very comfortable situation comparatively. So it doesn't mean that we can do, the catechism says you can't do, um, you can't justify bad or immoral means to get to a moral end or for what you think is a moral good. Um, all things, parts of a decision or a choice need to be moral.
But it's interesting that you say that because you do see that kind of theme in the Old Testament, that there is this kind of like sense that we're meant to be this great power and yet all these people are oppressing us, so we need to survive, we need to persist. And I think that's why the scrutiny of Jesus makes even more sense. Because if this is something that's so precious and instilled by God that you, Pharisees, elders, priests, you have the authority to teach people and you're doing it wrong, then you're that much more culpable for potentially losing all of this again. How many times in Hebrew history did they lose their covenant with God, their relationship with him? The flood wiping out all of these generations of people. The kingdom being lost. The promised land being lost. The temple being destroyed. How many more losses? are you trying to bring upon yourself? And so that's why I think like Jesus gets frustrated in moments. He has these moments where the, the word in Greek is where he's like moved to his bowels with compassion. It's like an animalistic word. It happens, it's used when Lazarus dies. It's this like frustration that Jesus has with the consequences of sin and death and the corruption of humankind. It's not that he's mad at humanity. He hates the effect that sin has on us, that this human corruption has on us to tear us away from the relationship we were meant to have with God. He's that passionately in love with us. He's that intentional in his desire to reconcile us that anytime he encounters these things that get in our way, he's just like, come on, like, I wanna bring you back to where you were supposed to be. Why, why are you letting this stuff get in the way? And that's what I think is happening here and in the coming chapters. That's why he really reams at the Pharisees and the scribes. It's not that they don't know the right law, and they're not teaching it. It's how they're doing it and the scandal that they're causing and the fact that they're not backing up their words with works. And that's just empty faith. It's empty faith. I spoke words on my wedding day to my wife. That doesn't mean we have a good faithful marriage. The works that I do to sacrificially love her and our family every single day, that's what means that we have a faithful and good marriage. The same thing is true in our faith. We can say we believe in God. We can go through the motions and do the relationship things. But if the effort is not there, if the sacrifice and the responsibility, the discipline is not there, it's hollow, meaningless. It's going to fall apart eventually. Any relationship, especially our relationship with God. That's why Jesus is so critical of the Pharisees and scribes here. Because that's the relationship that they've had and that they've been giving an example of as appropriate for everybody else. I can't remember what the question was. I hope I answered it. Um, <laughs> or the comment was. Sorry, I got on a, a rant there. Anyway, other... Oh, oh, <laughs> time's up. Sorry. Um, so, wow, that was weird. Um, so I think as we read this passage and kind of reflect on this for next Sunday... Um, I think really this is an opportunity to be a litmus test for ourselves, our own faith. Is our faith just empty words or is it backed up by works? Are we truly repenting when we separate ourselves from God? Are we truly sorry for our sins? And what is our attitude toward other Christians and other non-believers? Do we jump to criticism and judgment at the way other people behave, worship, pray, speak about their faith, practice their faith? And do we do that out of holier-than-thou status or out of authentic love? Because when we do it out of authentic love, it will look different. It will look different. We'll be approaching them in compassion. We'll be reaching out to them in love. We'll want something for them, not just some behavior from them. And if we want that for other people, we need to be living that ourselves. 
each and every day, being obedient, which is not just listening, not just hearing. It is a change of behavior and a lifestyle. And so brothers and sisters, if your life doesn't look radically different and joyful because of your relationship with Jesus, no matter what you're going through, that is possible. But if it doesn't look that way, it doesn't look remotely different, there's not fruit, then there's something wrong in that relationship that needs to be mended. And because God is perfect, there's only one other person in that relationship. And so we really need to assess what we need to do to have deeper faith, deeper obedience, and to make sure that our works are matching up with our words. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, give us the words in prayer to be able to ask for the gifts that we need to answer the call to be faithful. Give us humility. Help us, Lord, to set aside our own pride, our own selfishness, our own vanity, to encounter you in the other, in everyone that we meet, to not jump to judgment, but to jump to love and curiosity, and to expect to meet you in everyone we encounter, and to draw closer to you with them together. Forgive us in the ways that we've been modern-day Pharisees. Forgive us in the ways that we've been disobedient, that we've said we would do things but not followed through, or the ways we've been blatantly disobedient and have rejected you. We pray and ask for your forgiveness, Lord. We pray that you reconcile us in the ways that sin has wreaked havoc or destroyed the parts of our life that it has touched. And we pray, Lord, for the grace to be able to faithfully show up day in and day out to meet our end of this relationship, to hold up our end of the bargain and our commitment to you, to love you, to know you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.